0: Good to be with you this morning, continuing our series that's been gone for quite some time now on old theology for current times. We've only got a couple weeks left, so we have today, and then our recent TES grad and new pastoral resident James Sullivan is going to be teaching next week on listening to sermons or expository listening. We had Ken, Ken Rainey's book in our book nook for a while. Ken is a longtime friend of Rick's and has done some work on expository listening that's helpful. And so James is going to be teaching on that. And then starting on Sunday, July 4th, we're going to kick off a new study over really covering the minor prophets. Um, Our plan for that is to basically do one week the message of each each book, the message of each minor prophet. Uh, So we're looking forward to kicking that off starting July 4th. And as I mentioned today, we're continuing looking at this series we've been in where we've wanted to really look at practical theology, sort of the, the so what of some of the theological commitments that we hold dear. How do those flesh out in everyday life? We've wanted to do that in snapshots, and none of them have been a comprehensive treatment of any category of systematic theology, but simply asking how does the Bible want us to think, how does the Bible, what the Bible teaches shape our thinking on particular issues. And today, we're going to turn our attention toward eschatology or the Doctrine of Last Things. When I say eschatology throughout our lesson this morning, or Doctrine of Last Things, it sounds to some of us like a fancy word, and it's really not. It has a lot of different definitions, depending on what you're reading and who you're reading. But today, for today's lesson purposes, when I say eschatology, I simply mean what the Bible teaches about God's plan for the consummation of all things. So we're aimed more specifically at futuristic eschatology now the word eschatology usually elicits a variety of responses okay you may be experiencing that right now if you haven't looked at the handout you may be wondering what's about to happen Uh, because it's for a variety of reasons many historical we are conditioned in our day to think about that term a particular way and to presume a lot about what that doctrine is or isn't Millard Erickson has put these responses on a spectrum and borrowing his terms he said on one end of the spectrum you have eschatomania and on the other end you have eschatophobia (laughs) eschatomania if we can elaborate would be the extreme of preoccupation preoccupation with subjects that sometimes are thought to be like the real deep end end times stuff such as the identity of the Antichrist or the present identity of nations in historical prophecies, Gog, Magog, and interpreting scripture through current events, the prophecy news desk um, that is still in business after many, many, many years of not such good reporting. But they continue. It's that. It's being consumed with the politics of the Middle East or figuring out which modern day weapons will make an appearance in end times battles. That type of eschatomania, that preoccupation with a particular brand of eschatology that really is different, as we'll see today, from the focus and the emphasis of Scripture. On the far extreme, sometimes eschatomaniacs think that eschatology is only reserved for the most serious Bible studier, and sometimes even that the more Bible verses it takes to weave together some point of obscure fulfillment, the more serious the eschatological teaching And we said much of that approach has been popularized by what we may call popular prophecy teaching. On the other hand, on the other extreme, eschatophobia. That would be those who dismiss any notion of relevance or importance from the Bible's teaching about the future. Eschatophobes get nervous when they hear the word rapture. They get nervous about eschatology and teaching at a church that values the Bible's teaching about the future or that has last things in a doctrinal statement. They think that often in reaction to eschatomania, that eschatology is impractical. Eschatophobes may not know what their eschatology is, but they do know that they don't want to be like the eschatomaniacs. Okay, that's kind of the idea. Now, those are extremes. And I trust that we're somewhere in the middle and some of us leaning more on one side than the other. But the point is, is that we have to acknowledge these extremes. And whether it's the bad teaching of the maniacs or the avoidance by those with a phobia, there's been a diminishing of the value of eschatology in the church. And that's what we want to look at today and try to address a little bit about how we ought to think about eschatology, its importance, Um, try to correct some of our maybe extremes, or our tendencies toward extremes. James Edwards, in his commentary on Mark, particularly in a section dealing with the Olivet Discourse, says this, the mischief caused by the misuse of eschatology, not least in contemporary America, has resulted in a virtual eclipse of eschatology in the life of the church. This unfortunate set of circumstances, both its abuse and its subsequent neglect, has weakened the church. Rather than strengthened it. I agree with him wholeheartedly. I agree with his diagnosis. And the cure for that is not more prophecy teaching from prophecy teachers, it's not more prophecy conferences or left behind novels. It's to press in to see what Scripture teaches us about the future. And that's what we want to do this morning. First, viewing the last things through the lenses of what we might call biblical eschatology. And what I mean by that is I just want to give you a few features of biblical eschatology that should shape our perspective in how we come to our Bibles concerning things of the future. Um, These could be three features of biblical eschatology that help us to view the last things as God intends, or you may call them as features that, that help correct us or correctives that help to guide our focus About how we think and believe about the last things and so after doing that then in accordance with the pattern that we've tried to establish for our Sunday school time then we'll look at some if-then statements connected to this just for some practical implications and so I want to start with the first feature and that is that the Bible's teachings about the future are concerned with the certainty of God's promises not speculation about the unknown eschatology deals with the certainty of God's promises not mainly and primarily speculation about the unknown. Now, why do I start off there? Because, as I've already alluded to, many of us think that eschatology concerns the things that somehow no one can figure out. That if you're really good at eschatology, you know the really weird and nuanced stuff that nobody else knows in the church. But the idea from Scripture is that eschatology and God's plans for consummation are so critical, they're clear. They're clear in his word. They're clear as given to the church because they're important for the life of the church. And when we look at a we want to be more focused on what God has said is certain. And make sure that our hope and our expectations are built on certainty and not areas of curiosity and speculation. Look first, and we're going to go quick through several of passages, and so if you don't want to turn you just want to hear me, Sam, that's fine. I encourage you to underline and go back later. When the apostles, for example, use the teaching about the future to address issues in the church, they're dealing in matters of certainty. And they address things that are supposed to be taken in by those who hear them and and applied in life to to their heart, whether it's balm for uncertainty or strength to endure under suffering, as the example I'm about to give. But they were clear. The things are clear. The promises of God are clear, and they're they're certain, and that is what is used by the biblical writers to spur on God's people. For example, in 2 Thessalonians 1.5, Paul is writing to encourage this church that is enduring much affliction. He says they're in the midst of persecutions and afflictions, and he's encouraging them to endure, and he does so by saying in verse 5, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. So their suffering is an indication of God's righteousness and we'll go on to manifest that. Verse 6, For after all it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when? When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And he continues... For this purpose, what's interesting to note is he wants to encourage those who are under affliction and he does so with the return of Christ and the certainty of it. In fact, the certainty of judgment for those who are opposed to God and his purposes. It's certain. The balm for the soul or the girding up of this church facing affliction was the certainty of Christ's return. Not some minor nuance that it takes a bunch of verses and between the lines in which there's debate. There's room for those things, but that's not the primary focus here. Excuse me. Similarly, look at 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Very familiar verses to us, and they they have an extensive futuristic bent. Peter talks about this living hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Those of you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, future. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And he goes on. Point there is the encouragement of this hope that we have is a future-oriented hope that will be Fully understood, fully, maybe better word than understood, fully experienced at the consummation when Jesus comes back. The certainty of what's coming when Christ comes, which here is this ultimate under experience of the salvation we've had, obtaining it fully, that which we have now, but in full when Christ is revealed. The certainty of that is how Peter starts his letter. Again, not some minor points of speculation, but certainty. And then look at 2 Peter 3. And you can keep your finger in 2 Peter 3 because we're going to probably reference this more than once. Peter starts off in verse 1 of 2 Peter 3 by saying that he's writing to remind them of something. And then verse 2 tells us what that is. That they should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So, the word of God, we could say for short. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts and saying where is the promise of his coming for ever since the fathers fell asleep all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation he says for when they maintain this it escapes their notice that by the now listen to the emphasis the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water but by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? Verse 13. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's a lot to take in. What I want you to note here is that Peter says that the challenge from the false teachers will be the credibility of God's word, the promise of the coming future. And he goes on to demonstrate how in the past God has been faithful to his word in executing what his word said would come to pass. And then he calls our attention back and says, and this word, this sure word about the future, you can count on it. And then he's going to teach and say, it is going to happen as he's promised, verse 10 and following. The concern is the promise of the word of God. And the exhortation from Peter to his listeners is stand firm in the certainty of what God has promised. That will come to pass. And then he gives ethical instruction from that, which we'll see. But again, the point of all that is that the Bible's teachings about the future are concerned with the certainty of God's promises. When we think about eschatology, we shouldn't think about an impractical category that we don't really need We should think about the certainty of God's word about the future. The heart of the revelation from God about the future is so that our hope and our expectation is rooted on his sure promises. Not so that just for those who are interested can read things that the rest of us maybe don't want to read and don't matter. It's only for the curious, no. Eschatology is about the certainty of God's promise and our expectation then as we'll see later needs to be filled with the content of those certain promises. Secondly, the Bible's teachings about the future permeate God's instructions for the church. They're not impractical supplementary subjects that are tacked on to the end of everything else. This is more by way of observation. I just want to point out how how many of us may think of Romans 8 as an eschatological portion of Scripture or Philippians chapter 1 when Paul introduces the letter to the church at Philippi with his prayers for them and they're dripping with end times focus or 1 Thessalonians those we'll look at in just a moment the point of just jotting these down is simply to say as you read through the New Testament letters like the coming of Christ the day of Christ the revelation of the Lord Jesus these things are just coming out in areas that we would not probably study explicitly in a systematic text on eschatology they're, 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 they just fit they're a part of the fabric of New Testament revelation to the church they're a part of the fabric of the way that the church is admonished and exhorted they're just there The day of Christ, the coming of Christ is always there, it seems like, on the tip of the Apostle Paul and others' tongues to motivate uh, response, to encourage the downtrodden, to correct and rebuke those who are living lazily and disobedient. It's always there. It's not there as some sort of, like, treatment on the intermediate state or something like this, which those things are valuable, and we should study them. But as you see the—I just want you to see that teaching about the future— is not reserved for just isolated things. It's just the future meaning God's consummation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, details about that are in Scripture, but that's always there, just permeates Scripture. And we're probably not going to look at it. Look at, look at First Thessalonians with me, just briefly. I just want to show you how it just kind of keeps coming up. We're not going to try to unpack all these texts or anything like that. I'm just struck by it's in Paul's prayers. It's in Paul's opening encouragement. It's in his closing admonitions and instructions. And he has, of course, extended treatments that we would recognize more regularly as, you know, dealing with matters of last things, like 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. But he starts off his letter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. It's interesting. If we look back up in verse 9, he says, this is, how he ca- this is how he categorizes the salvation of the believers in Thessalonica. For they themselves, that is others, because the word has gone forth, report about us what kind of reception, that is, what kind of reception Paul and his associates had with them. Listen to their conversion. And how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And, we may say, how you also turn to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Paul just describes this, the conversion of these as you turn from idols to the living and true God and you begin to wait for Jesus. Right? He's focused on the, on the future, on consummation, on what they're waiting for, on that ultimate inheritance that they would receive. Who rescues from the wrath that would be poured out on an unbelieving world. Then later, chapter 2, he says this, after giving this report about his ministry and his concern for them, and he's trying to encourage them and build them up by sharing his own heart, really, for the Thessalonians. He says this, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? In the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming. And Interestingly, he's using what it will be like to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes. Paul's saying, when I stand before the Lord on that day, you in Christ on that day, that will be my source of joy and exaltation, my crown. He's looking forward to consummation and using that to encourage them in their current situation. It's just right there, the coming of Christ. Chapter three, listen how Paul prays. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. Paul wants to get back to them to do more ministry. He loves them. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with his saints. We could keep reading First Thessalonians and you're going to keep hearing that from Paul and it's just striking how if I can confess different that emphasis is than the way I tend to encourage or admonish or exhort it's the way that I pray and we'll get to those implications in a minute but the point is is this is just one example you can look at other verses that the future permeates the New Testament of course permeates the prophets as well but it's, it's there in apostolic instruction it's not set aside reserved in only a few places it's just there now you look at First Thessalonians 4 and you're going to see encouragement from the fact that the Lord's going to catch up believers in the air and that's to comfort those who were worried about those who had died in Christ. And then 1 Thessalonians 5, alertness and soberness in light of the day of the Lord and what's going to happen there. And then he gets to the end of chapter uh, 5. And he says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus. So it just permeates that letter, of course. And you can look at these other examples. And really the point of that, you looking at those, is just to maybe be surprised a little bit read Philippians 1, be surprised by, oh, there's a reference to the day of Christ. There's a reference to the coming of Christ. There's a reference to my future resurrection body in places that you may not typically associate with eschatology. Thirdly, the Bible's teachings about the future are primarily intended to motivate a response to exhortation. A third feature that should help us view and read the, the, the Bible's teachings about the last things rightly is that the Bible's teachings about the future are primarily intended to to motivate a response to exhortation or admonition or encouragement. If we ask, why is this revelation about the future, why is God's promises about the consummation of all things in our Bible, the answer is almost always to stir you to hope, to obey, to trust, to remain steadfast. In other words, the answer is almost always to affect your life as a Christian right now. Not so that we can just think about it when we're curious and if we want to be really deep, but to motivate how you live your Christian life every day. That's why we have the teaching of God about the future. Generally, I, I've given you a quote there from John Frame. You can read it. It's helpful. He says, It's a pity that the church's teaching on eschatology the last days has been concerned mostly with argument about the order of events. In Scripture itself, the primary thrust of eschatology is ethical. I tend to agree with him. Ethical, it's motivation for the way we live, our walk of faith, because we don't yet see fully. So generally, for example, what what does that point mean? Well, it may mean that just generally, right, teaching about the future judgment is used to motivate repentance, Right? It's used to call people to believe the gospel. Teaching about future restoration and the promise, the future inheritance, as we saw in Peter, is used to motivate endurance and steadfast faith in his people, in us. We could be more specific, and I just want to give you a quick tour. I do this at risk of, of our time, but I, I, it's, I think it's worth it. Again, this is just a quick tour. We'll focus on the New Testament. So the Old Testament prophets were not preoccupied with speculation about the future or the future for the future's sake. They, pers- they, they proclaimed God's will to God's people about what he would do in the future in order to call for a response from the people who heard it in the present. That's the message. You're going to hear that over the next few weeks as Aaron and I and others look at the message of the minor prophets. Okay? So in the New Testament, that pattern then is carried forward beginning with the preaching of John the Baptist. We see this pattern of instruction that begins with a call for action. Repent. Why? In light of God's future plans, the kingdom of heaven is at at hand. Jesus Christ picked up that mantle. He continued calling for repentance in light of God's kingdom unveiling. We see that when he says, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is is at hand. Skipping forward to the Olivet Discourse, which Pastor Rick took us through back in Mark, Jesus calls for watchfulness and readiness as a response to the revelation about God's future plans his intent was not to engender speculation but the anticipation of an imminent event so he he gives us this futuristic teaching to call for watchfulness and alertness in our lives in the present this is what I'm going to do in the future here's how you need to live right now in light of that that coming day that pattern then is carried throughout in scripture. As we look at Christ personally, his sayings in the final work of the canon of scripture in Revelation, call us to respond with obedience, to endure, to be ready. In Revelation 2, 16, Revelation 3, 11. Then in Revelation 22, repeatedly, we see, behold, I'm coming. Obey, obey my words. Will I find you obedient or disobedient? So there's this call for readiness and watchfulness Ethically, based on what's going to happen in the future. We see this in the apostles, in Paul, in Romans 13, the nearness of final salvation is to motivate Christ-honoring conduct, Romans 13, 11 through 13. In the teaching about the resurrection, in 1 Corinthians 15, right, verses 20 through 28, there's a lot of detail there. And even that section where there's detail about resurrection bodies and orders and everything, how does he end that whole section, therefore be steadfast and immovable right now? I've given you revelation about what's going to happen with the resurrection, resurrection bodies, the order, the whole bit, all so that you would be steadfast and immovable in your faith. So present purpose, right? The apprehension of the future details were to result in diligent labor as we live out waiting on God to bring that about. Philippians three seventeen, we see the transformation of the body at the time of Christ's future coming as motivation for godly conduct. Really, that's one of those chapter breaks in scripture that we have in our translations that can be interesting. Four one is really the so what of the eschatological teaching in 3.17 um, and following. And so, you see, therefore, live this way because of what I've just told you about what's going to happen to us. And then even, it just kind of comes out. Paul just says, and the Lord is near in chapter 4, verse 5. So indeed, the Lord is near, and that should motivate godly living the rapture passage, the rapture passage, the catching up of believers, right? Why does he give that revelation? So that we could comfort one another, so that we would not grieve as those without hope. It's comfort and encouragement, First Thessalonians 4.18, not timing. Like the main emphasis is comfort and encouragement. And later in the same letter as we've already seen, Paul talks about the day of the Lord in relationship to pursuing holiness. And we already referenced Second Peter 3. First John tells us that the hope of Christ's revelation in First John 2 and into 3 is to be purifying. It's to cause us to turn from sin so that we don't shrink back in shame at our Lord's coming. So again, the view of the future is intended to motivate present obedience. Now I know that that was quick but let's talk about a little bit of a so what if those features are true and you probably haven't had time to determine if they are so just trust me <laughs> if these features represent some of the shape of biblical eschatology then so what And I want to suggest just a couple things First, if eschatology is about God's certain promises, then twofold. First, we must be sure that the content of our hope and expectation is what God has clearly revealed and certainly promised. And you say, well, that's obvious. But in this category is where we tend to go astray. The details or even areas where it's okay to be curious, but we just don't have clear revelation, those things who's Gog and Magog right now in the present timetable? Or I mentioned earlier, what weapons would are represented in these verses in Revelation at this great battle? Those shouldn't be the content of your hope and expectation. Those are curiosity. Sometimes Bible study can help us make informed uh, assessments of those things. But the fact that we have to try to figure it out more so than just the clear exhortation that comes in those teachings and what the point of them reveals to us that the content of our hope and expectation should be what is certainly promised, not details that some we see more clearly than others. In other words, we have to be able to prioritize the way that we view certain teachings of eschatology. Not all things are at primary level of importance. But again, the content of your hope and expectation matters. We looked at 1 Peter 1. The living hope that you're called to, that imperishable inheritance that you're going to receive. That, he says, you're to be certain about that hope. He says, actually, in chapter 1, verse 13, right? Set your hope on that, on the certainty of what is going to come to you in Christ's day, which is way different than saying set your hope on particular nuances of how the nations may align in an end times, you know, scheme. We're supposed to focus on the clarity of God's certain promises in 2nd Peter 2 or 2nd Thessalonians 2 excuse me after Paul teaches quite a bit in an area about antichrist and about what's going to happen events associated with the day of the Lord Jesus Christ and this, this man of lawlessness this man of sin that will come and what Christ will do when he returns and destroys that man and there's no doubt this is an end times culminating anti-god figure and authority that Christ comes back and destroys But at the end of all of that, Paul says, verse 15 of chapter 2, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. That's interesting. Why would he at the end of that? Well, he's saying that don't hold fast to things others may have come in and said about those events. Don't hold fast to teaching that may skew what the apostles had given to the churches about the future. Hold fast to what's clear and certain, what's been communicated, what's been revealed through God's apostles. Similarly, Hebrews 10.23 calls us to hold fast, hold firm to what we were taught. In that text, as we'll see, you know, you read through 10 verses and he's talking about a future promise. Second, in addition to being sure that the content of our hope and expectation is the certain promise of God in the future, not whether America's going to be on the end times seen or not, not what's going to happen with oil in the Middle East, but certain promises about the coming of Christ. In addition to that, we need to guard against being carried away by eschatological error. Interestingly, at the end of 2 Peter 3, similar to what Paul says in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, he calls for steadfastness about teaching, about apostolic teaching about the end, about the certainty of God's promises. The implication is That that's an area of attack. Clearly the false teachers in 2 Peter that he's addressing were calling into question the certainty of God's promises. So he's addressing that. But he tells us at the end that false teachers actually tried to take some of the apostle Paul's teachings. We have one of the great attestations of apostles seeing other apostolic writings as scripture. It's just an aside. But we see that wonderfully here. And Paul says that some people are distorting what Paul was teaching. And then he gives us that wonderful aside. Some of these things are hard to understand, he says but the false teachers are distorting them. And I think in context, he's talking mainly about some of the end times teachings that we have, some of the things about the future. That's what he's talking about in context, particularly the patience of, our, of the Lord as salvation and to look for the things, verse 14, in diligence. So then in 15, he says, just as Paul wrote you according to the wisdom given him. Then in verse 16, he says, the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of scripture, some of these things that that Paul had taught them. And then he says in verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. So this is a warning to the church. Be on your guard, beloved, so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think he has in mind there false teaching, particularly that would question the future promises of God, just based on the context of 2 Peter 3 but we're susceptible. I take one implication from this, that we can be susceptible to believe error about God's future promises. And we need to be called back to see what the apostles have taught clearly and press in. Are we believing biblical eschatology? We're tempted to doubt on the one hand. We can be tempted to distort on the other hand. And Peter says, remain steadfast and immovable. Secondly, if eschatology permeates God's instruction for the church, then the Bible's teaching about the future should be a regular part of our ministry to one another. Now, I don't mean that every care group is a prophecy conference, okay? I mean how you admonish, how you exhort, how you pray. Did you just hear in 1 Thessalonians how much Paul used the coming and the day of Christ to encourage, exhort, even admonish? The believers he was writing to? Is that a part of our discipleship ministry to one another? If you think like like I do, or if my example that I'm convicted about, and it's not nearly enough, the coming of Christ is a wonderful promise, not something that people are just debate about if they're really into eschatology. It's a wonderful certain promise that should give us hope when we're facing difficulty. It should purify us, as 1 John says, as we think about that day and we turn from sin. It should cause us to walk in obedience, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3, saying, man, we need to be living in holy conduct and godliness based on what we know is going to come when Christ is revealed, flaming fire, doling out vengeance, to use Paul's language in 2 Thessalonians 1. So we need to use that. Second, listen, 2 Timothy, I just find it interesting, this exhortation from Paul. His famous exhortation to preach the word from Paul to his beloved disciple, Timothy. Remember this? He says, I solemnly charge you and then he just starts stacking up all these things to really bring the, how solemn this charge really is. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God. And of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living of the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom, preach the word. In other words, his admonition to young Timothy was motivated by the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, among other things. It's just interesting that that the coming of Christ was used to motivate Timothy's obedience, his steadfastness to his charge for ministry in the local church. Immediately practical, right? Similarly, look at James five. This is another one of those areas where, you know, you're, my lack of of knowledge about a particular book. You may think you know a book, James. I, I will confess, I tend not to think. Yeah, there's a real important eschatological exhortation in James. Think about it, you know, the New Testament Proverbs and all those other wonderful passages we see in James. But he says this, be patient in James 5, 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts. On what basis? For the coming of the Lord is near and then he goes on to give more admonition exhortation do not complain so you won't be judged all of those things are colored by this notion that the, the coming of the Lord is near interesting and then prayers Pastor Rick is working through one of the prayers of Paul from Ephesians just look briefly at Philippians chapter 1 Just a beloved verse, right, that we, Philippians 1, 6. As Paul opens his letter and is praying, starting in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Verse 6, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. Why? In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. In one prayer, Two aspects of the prayer. The day of Christ is set out as an ultimate end, as a goal that is in his communication to this beloved body of believers about how he's praying for them. And it caused me to ask, do I I pray this way? Do people know that I'm praying this way? I'm praying for the Lord to work in your life that you would be perfected and mature when Christ Jesus comes back. That's not a common part of my exhortation to others. And I think it should be. I think that the coming of Christ, the promises about the future, the future judgment when we're dealing with disobedience and unbelief, those things should be a regular part of ministry to one another and to those in the world in the life of the church. The future is important. And lastly, if eschatology is concerned with our spiritual condition in the present, then we must avoid the extremes of neglect and distortion and seek the sober and purifying hope that comes from rightly interpreting scripture. Look lastly at 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. You want to know you have Sound eschatology. You have a life marked by clear mindedness, self control, and prayer. Interesting to see that the, the nearness of the end, the imminence of God's future, is to induce sobriety, self control, clear vision, and prayer. Not date setting. Not vain speculation, not idle withdrawal, but soberness, alertness, and prayer, active ministry. In Tom Schreiner's commentary on this, he references a story famously from Martin Luther who was asked, what would you do if the end came today? And he famously apparently said, plant a tree and pay my taxes. The point of that was that he lived every day in light of the end. That, that whatever task was needful for that day, that was what would be done. The normal task for the day is what we would do because you live every day in light of the nearness of the end. That's kind of the implication. The end is near. Be sober. Right? For the purpose of prayer. It's interesting to me to see that eschatology we think can be tempted to think so many just errant thoughts about what it is what it's concerned with all that type of stuff that I introduced our time with but when we think of eschatology and life of the church we need to think of it as that which is needful to produce sobriety faithful labor in ministry to one another endurance and perseverance in the faith holding fast to that which we've been taught Hebrews 10 holiness holiness Vision of the end should induce holiness by the work of the Spirit of God as we consider what God has promised and prayer. We need to reject any version of eschatology that pulls us or distracts us from the clear revelation of Scripture that would produce this fruit. And we need to hold fast that God's certain promises given to us through what we've received from his prophets, from his apostles and canonized for us here. And as Paul prayed, that we may stand in holiness at the coming of the Lord Jesus. That's ultimately why this is in our Bible. And we need to have our focus just a little bit sharpened and adjusted as we think about the way that scripture presents the future. So I'll be around if, for just a few minutes anyway until if, if anyone has any questions. Excited we're coming back in the next service. We're gonna have a baptism service, so we're very much looking forward to that. Let me close in prayer, and we'll be dismissed and get ready for our worship service.